2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, world. This is the Global Media and Communication podcast series. I am Aswin Punathambaker, the director of the Center for Advanced Research in Global Communication.
4: This is Jing Wang, the senior research manager at CARC.
3: Our podcast is part of a multimodal project powered by CARG here at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania.
4: At CARG, we produce and promote critical, interdisciplinary, and multimodal research on global media and communication. We aim to bridge academic scholarship and public life, bringing the very best scholarship to bear on enduring global questions and pressing contemporary issues.
3: And today we have three guests, um, Thomas Poole from the University of Amsterdam, David Nieberg from the University of Toronto, and Brooke Duffy from Cornell University. And they are co-authors of a new book titled Platforms and Cultural Production, published in 2022 by Polity Press. Welcome, it's an incredible honor to have all of you here together. And we're eager to listen to your experiences of co-writing the book and to have a fun conversation about the book itself. And before we get going, Uh, Would you like to briefly introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Maybe I uh, shall start. So thank you, first of all, for uh, having us, which is really wonderful. Uh, We love to talk about the book and it's nice to do with all three of us. So I'm uh, Thomas Poole. I'm a professor of uh, data, culture and institutions at the University of Amsterdam. And I'm also leading a uh, initiative on uh, global digital cultures. Uh, which has a yearly conference and is currently editing a a special issue, double special issue on global perspectives on platforms and cultural production, which we'll talk about a bit later during the the podcast.
5: Um, Hey, thanks for uh, having us. Um, This is David Niebach. I'm an associate professor at the University of Toronto. um, And this academic year, I'm a visiting professor at the University of Amsterdam. Um, so I'm currently located in the Kingdom of the Netherlands.
0: Okay, and I am Brooke Erin Duffy. I am an associate professor in the Department of Communication at Cornell University. Um, and I am joining you from outside of Ithaca, and I'm on sabbatical this year, like David. And so um, I am all cozied up in my office, excited to to chat with you, and let me echo the. My collaborators, thanks for having us
1: here.
3: Wonderful. Yeah, thank you again for joining us. And I guess we should start with an origin story of sorts. Um, Both, we were really curious to hear how this collaborative project came about. And given especially that each one of you has such distinct interests and disciplinary orientations, could you reflect on how all of that shaped the book project and how it came together?
1: Um, yeah, maybe maybe I should start by... Um, so uh, I've been thinking about platforms and cultural production, especially from the perspective of uh, changes in uh, in journalism and news. Uh, and that actually started in a previous project, uh, which I worked on together with José uh, van Dijk and um, Martijn de Waal, uh, which is published in the form of a book as the Platform Society. And in that project, I looked at the ways in which platforms become involved in uh, the distribution, monetization, and to some extent also production of news. And uh, looking at that, I was very interested in how new forms of dependence developed, especially given that journalism has historically been very platform independent. Um, So very much sort of guiding uh, or guarding its uh, its independence from commercial influence, but also political influence. And it has done so, of course, throughout uh, the 20th century and continues to try to do so in relation to platforms. Uh, so that was kind of my, my starting interest. And um, from that project, I came in conversation with David, who I already knew as a colleague here at the University of Amsterdam. And David has been doing research on, on gaming. Uh, and. What struck us when when discussing our, our research was that on the one hand, we saw a lot of correspondences with uh, the ways in which platforms are involved in these industries. Uh, so we saw very extensive use of data. Uh, we saw that um, cultural producers, so news organizations and game publishers were adapting their um, the production of content to... The infrastructures and also the business models of these platforms. So there were there were clear um, correspondences between these d- quite different fields of cultural production, but also clear variations. Uh, so gaming has been historically very platform in the uh, sorry very platform dependent. Uh, so as software, uh, it needs a platform, a hardware platform to run on. So these differences, but also correspondences, were very interesting to us. Uh, and when uh, thinking about how to how to study them, uh, we uh, quite quickly um, noticed that there wasn't really a comprehensive framework to do so. Uh, so there, there's good work being done in journalism studies, in game studies, and in other fields as well, like uh, music studies. But there isn't really a comprehensive framework that allows you to study these fields of cultural production. Um, and and understand how platforms work across them. Um, So that's what we kind of started with in, I think it was 2017, uh, when we tried to come up with a framework that allows for the study of these platforms across fields of cultural production. Uh, And we wrote this article, The Platformization um, of Cultural Production for New Media and Society, which eventually became the framework uh, for the first half of the book, which we came to understand as um, the study of the institutional uh, dimensions uh, of platforms and platformization.
3: Thank you. Yeah, and you've also touched upon two of the key words, but I wonder if um, David wants to chime in and talk a little bit about how his approach to gaming also shaped the approach to the book.
5: Yeah, so this is sort of a a, a natural jump-off point for this conversation that we're having right now because it mimics so well the conversations Thomas and I have had. So for the last 20 years, I've been studying the game industry as a political economist. So I'm interested interested in questions of power in the game industry. Um, And game studies and game industry studies is so relevant for this conversation because for over two decades, they've been studying platform dependency without knowing it almost. Uh, there is a great book series called Platform Studies, which predates much of our own scholarship, which goes to show that game scholars are keenly aware of questions of platforms, the economics, the infrastructure, etc. So it all came very natural. Uh, it's not that we sat down and, and sort of, now we're going to do this. It was very organic and bottom-up, so to say, how these literal, Literally, these conversations came about. Uh, and then uh, what sort of the impetus of all of this was in 2017, uh, we, we sort of wanted to make this more uh, tangible. Uh, we submitted a paper for AIR uh, with uh, other colleagues. Brooke was part of it, Robert Prey from University of Groningen, uh, Stuart Cunningham from Australia. And with the five of us, we had this cross uh a conversation about these different industries and how they were platform dependent and independent. So this project in that sense goes uh, back five years um, and it, it instantly uh, provided sort of generative conversation. We instantly, uh, Thomas and I had these conversations, uh, Brooke as well and others. Um, then we did the paper that Thomas just mentioned in New Media and Society, which became the start of point for a special issue or two special issues we invited our colleagues to, to think through uh, these issues and with a particular focus on specific industries. Um, and it provided a wealth of uh, really high quality scholarship that also really advanced our thinking uh, for the book.
0: Yeah, so I come from a media industries background, um, and I'm trained in communication. I got my PhD from the Annenberg School, where um, you're both representing today. Um, And for me, I... I was approached by Thomas and David and was really energized by what they were doing um, in terms of thinking about platforms and cultural production. What are some of the continuities um, across different fields? Uh, I have been studying social media and um, social media content creation since about 2013 Um, and they invited me to collaborate with them on this project that had already started, which was an interesting um, place to join. And it, it, it for me, it was really about um, where is the the bottom up element of this. And so, by bottom up, um, you know, I tend to study people and processes and more micro or mezzo level um, analytic topics rather than, um, the large scale markets or, or governance or the areas that are represented in the first part of the book. Um, and so I wanted to, to know, like, where are people, where are creative processes, where's, where's labor represented in this. And so that was, um, the catalyst for the organization of the book, which I know we will get into, um, but, you know, picking up also where where David left off, we organized this conference at the University of Toronto in, in 2018. And at that time, we were not planning on writing a book together. Um, and on the heels of, you know, 48 hours of, of seeing our collaborators present on various topics related to cultural production, um, we decided to to write a book. We, um, I think, pitched it the next day at the Association of Internet Researchers. And, um, you know, we, we were kind of flying by the seat of our pants at that moment. And and fortunately, um, Mary Savinger, our editor from, from Polity, um, saw some potential in the project. And... Um we kind of started right then and had a collaborative writing experience at the University of Amsterdam um in, in 2019. We we got together and over two weeks we kind of fleshed out what the project would look like. And you know, it sounds so clear. Over two weeks we fleshed it out. I mean, it was very messy and and frustrating, and a lot of back and forth and a lot of um, you know, rethinking what would work, but um, so, you know, the end of 2019, we're, we're ready to finish the book. And then, you know, we, we know what happened in, in 2020. And so it ended up, um, adding a a good bit of time to our, our timeline as as we, we worked through this. Um, but the, the last thing I'll say in terms of the origin story is you think about, um, you know, this idea, like, well, we're like, we're going to write a book, the three of us. And I have written soul authored monographs before. And so in my head, I was like okay, well, this is going to be like a third of the amount of work because there's three of us. Um, and I'd say it was probably three times the amount of work because we all had to um, kind of agree on the central framework and, and the, the writing style, Um but I think we're all really happy with how it turned out. And um, I, I think the, the greatest testament, and we were talking about this as air, is that we all still really like each other and um, want to continue working together at the, the end of this. So I think that's um, a bit about how the writing process went.
3: Wonderful. No, thank you also for that last bit of reflection on co-authoring, especially in the more critical end of the social sciences and the humanities, where monographs remain sort of the gold standard. But it's clear that as the academic world shifts, as the political economy of academia changes, we do have to come up with better models to collaborate and do this kind of work. So maybe we can come back to it towards the end of the conversation and any advice you have. Um, Yeah, Thomas. Thomas.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking when when Marouk was talking about our, our experience of writing this, uh, it was kind of two things at the same time, right? So it was very joyful, I experienced, as a, as a really intellectually stimulating and also uh, in terms of working with these two, a really socially very pleasant experience of doing this. Um, but it was at the same time while we were sort of... Um, moving forward very fast, we also constantly throughout the process sort of discovered our limits. Uh, And I think very early on, David and I discovered the limits of our capabilities of writing about this. not just because we have expertise in journalism and, and, and game studies, but also, uh, and not necessarily in other fields, but also in terms of our thinking about this, because we approached it very much as Brooke was also indicating already in of how how she approached the project we approached this very much from an institutional perspective and we were very much lacking an understanding of how cultural practices develop around these platforms Uh, and and clearly that's such an important part of what we understand as the platformization of cultural production so i'm i don't think we could have written really a book just the two of us um, which is as comprehensive as 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 it is now, uh, so we really needed to work together to be able to write this um, so I think that was that was a very interesting, difficult, but very interesting and good experience
3: yeah, and you've touched upon um, a key point here, which is that the two keywords that lie at the heart of the book platforms and cultural production, um, really you can approach it from a number of disciplinary vantage points, right? And platform has now become one of those catch-all terms. Uh, And again, cultural production is a term that different disciplines invoke and think through in very distinct ways. So as you began, as you began doing this two week outlining process and so on, how did you sort through the many different definitions and approaches and crucially, how do you make sense of these terms in relation to the much broader processes of dig- digital infrastructures and imaginaries that we you were beginning to discern that lies at the heart of both platforms and cultural production?
1: Yeah, so, yeah, thanks for this question. So this is, this you kind of immediately touched on the central sort of struggle which we had in, in developing this research. Uh, so clearly this notion of platform uh has been has become a catch-all term which applies to social media, to search engines, to sharing economy um, services like Uber and Airbnb. But it also to it also been applied to other digital entities like uh, Netflix, for example, or the New York Times, and and even to sort of non digital entities like airports. Um, so as such, it kind of loses its, it loses its meaning. Um, and then at the same time, we were also triggered by uh, this quite early on article by Tarzan Gillespie, uh, 2010, on politics of uh, platforms. And, and he rightly points out that obviously this notion is very strategically employed by the companies that run these services, right? And uh, they, legitim- they use it to legitimize their service to end users. To uh, advertisers, culture producers, which we call complementers of platforms, as well as to legislators, and each time kind of use a different meaning of that term, and as such, you can see that the term has become a political instruments, which suggests emancipation, but also sort of neutrality in terms of the um, the uh, the information that is exchanged through through the service. Um, so, and I think then sort of confronted with, on the one hand, sort of the term that, that kind of starts to lose meaning and at the same time, the term that is strategically employed. We wanted to reappropriate it for critical research, um, to be able to use it also, um, indeed, to think critically about what, what does it mean when a platform becomes very central to, to a cultural sector. Uh, And then what we did, as you you pointed out, uh, we drew on a variety of theoretical traditions, um, which have each, in our mind, really made an important contribution to thinking about platforms. Uh, So uh, we took uh, a a very important notion from uh, business studies and economics, uh, understanding platforms as multi-sided markets, um, which bring together end-users, advertisers and cultural producers. Uh, but this approach, from our perspective, also uh, lacks a critical perspective on process of monopolization uh, of markets and uh, also uh, in terms of the exploitation of labor. So we also drew from critical political economy to try to understand precisely how platforms uh, intervene in, uh, in political economies. And then finally, uh, we were uh, especially then from an institutional perspective, inspired by work that was done in software studies, and platform studies, infrastructure studies, that understands platforms as data or computational infrastructures that enable these wide variety of actors to connect with each other and also allow for very specific forms of targeting. Um, and then, um, and then finally, we we thought about uh, platforms as um, governance frameworks, uh, that, um, do not obviously function as neutral conduits of interaction, but very much structure the interaction, uh, through a variety of different strategies. So combining these different traditions, we then started to understand platforms basically as markets, infrastructures and governance frameworks, um, which then in the end led us to this process of platformization, um which um, on the one hand means uh, the ways in which platforms become involved in a wide variety of sectors as markets, infrastructures and governance frameworks, but also involves the uh, development of all sorts of cultural practices around these platforms. Uh, So that's how we started to think about platforms in relation to labor, creativity and democracy. so yeah, uh, we we thought uh, for a long time about uh, about these uh, about these terms, and we actually think that bringing together these these different um, uh, traditions of research is very important because otherwise it, it becomes almost impossible uh, to uh, to develop a, a comprehensive and critical understanding.
3: Yeah, no, thank you. That's that's perfect, and. One of the things that works really well is not only do you do an amazing job of synthesizing these uh, approaches from very different disciplinary perspectives, but you also very early on, on page 13 of the book, you clarify that you're going to approach these very complex ideas by focusing on three sectors social media games and journalism right to in order to especially to grasp the institutional dimensions of what you call in that article and then later in the book the platformization uh, process now i assume that part of the decision to focus on these terrains of cultural production rested in on your own particular expertise and interests like you've been talking about um, but beyond that were there particular logics that were at play in these sectors that you saw during your discussion as coming together nicely to actually explain platformization. Was that also part of your uh, process?
1: Yes, certainly. So I already talked a little bit uh, at the start of this conversation about uh, journalism as being historically uh, platform independent and sort of guarding its independence from commercial and political influences. Uh, And that obviously feeds into the ways in which news organizations Uh, strategically position themselves in relation to platforms. Uh, And I briefly talked about uh, gaming as being historically very platform dependent as software running on on hardware platforms, which then leads to, again, a a different approach uh, to to platforms than what we see in the case of news organizations. And then uh, discussing these fields um, of culture production with Brooke. Um, we uh, very quickly, of course, um, observed that in social media, uh, we can also see a strong form of platform dependence from the get go. So if you think about YouTubers sort of growing up, um, finding audiences on YouTube or on Instagram, uh, you can see a, a strong form of platform dependence, but one that's at the same time different from what we see in the gaming industry. Right? Because, obviously, um, social media creators can move to other platforms, can distribute their videos and photos elsewhere. Um, so in that regard, these three fields of cultural production allowed us, on the one hand, to think about, so what is constant across these fields of cultural production? So how, do, how can we see particular mechan- economic mechanisms, infrastructural uh, mechanisms, and, and modes of governance take shape across these fields, but at the same time, we can think about the variation which we can see in these fields. Um, So, and and especially, and we can maybe talk about that later, that allows us also to think about these global variations, right? So if you think about these fields of cultural production, so news, gaming, and, and social media, they culturally and politically also play a very different role in different parts of the world. Uh, so that's uh, uh, that was also really intriguing to us.
3: That's great. Yeah, and in the way you divide it up into uh, focusing on institutional dimensions and changes in the first half and then cultural practice in second um, really works well, I think, and it works particularly well in the classroom as well. And perhaps we can delve into some specific ideas and arguments um, uh, in, in relation to those two sections. And the first, and what I think is a really crucial explanation of exactly how platforms operate has to do with your argument that we need to understand platforms as multi-sided markets like you said before you really drew quite a bit on economics and business studies could you tell us how you arrived at that idea how you developed it and what in what ways it helps us distinguish platforms and by extension platform economies as a distinct arena of cultural production, one that is, of course, it's connected to gaming and film and television and other media industries, but is truly distinctive.
5: Yeah, so I could I should speak to this because this is one of the things uh, or or bodies of work I brought into the book and into the project largely. Um, Very early on uh, in my own scholarship on the economics of, of Uh, platforms and games, I found that uh, scholars who have the best sense of platform economics are in mainstream economics and and business, what we call business studies uh, and strategic management. Um, I always call them the folks across the street because in Toronto, they're literally in the building across the street at the business school. uh, And they have a different culture. They have a different way of publishing, a different set of methods. Um, And 20 years ago, they theorized platform markets as, as multi-sided markets or even well before that. Um, and 20 years ago, when I started reach, uh, researching the game industry, there was so little scholarship on the game industry, especially in humanities. Game studies didn't exist <laughs> more than 20 years ago. Uh, so then you have to be sort of open to other disciplines, uh, even as a critical political economist, which it, sometimes it's Uh, uh, harder to take on sort of orthodox or mainstream economic ideas because they don't fit well with the critical, sometimes Marxist perspectives. Um, But the more and more I read uh, this uh, mainstream economic theory, the more it made sense. It's really rich scholarship. It's really well done. It's empirically very um, sophisticated. Um, And once you start to read it, uh, it's like, yeah, we have to pull this into our field. We have to learn from this. We have to not be so disciplinary, uh, you know, deaf uh, and ignore it. That would be a waste of fantastic scholarship. So that's how it came into this project and many other projects, because many of our colleagues have have done the same. We're, we're not unique in that sense. Um, so that's how this notion of multi-sided markets came into the project. And there's so much more to it. And we'll probably talk about that later today as well. It's this notion that... Um, Uh, uh, platform markets are multi-sided but they're also always markets uh, which is pretty important part of the project which we've done very early on is also bracket and define what we understand as cultural production Um, and this has been an ongoing debate uh, with our colleagues um, for very practical pragmatic reasons for the book we said for us, cultural production is for-profit, market-oriented production. That doesn't mean that user-created content is uh, less important, but it's not something we study. We're interested in in professionals who, if you want to make it super simple, want to make money. can be a, a YouTuber, a, uh, an individual, can be a publisher or a company or a studio or something like that. But we wanted to focus on that sort of media industry studies, as you're familiar with, rather than uh, sort of end users or users. Um, And again, that theory from economics uh, helped us tremendously because they have all of these very generative and conceptually rich ideas. Many of them, those ideas have been empirically tested uh, that we could draw from and bring into the project and the book. The one thing we always did and were very aware of is then to give it sort of a critical twist Um, because however much we love this scholarship from mainstream economics, it's, you know, inherently or implicitly about, oh, how can Facebook make more money? That's not entirely true. But, you know, there's, there's this orientation where this uh, capitalism is not uh, questioned and challenged. and, And we are interested in questions of power. Always. It begins and ends with questions of, of power and, and, for me as a political economist you know that's who how does capital accumulates uh, who owns the means of production and distribution etc so we had to sort of marry those two fields mainstream orthodox and heterodox uh, economics
3: that's really helpful and that connects quite nicely to what you brought up about thinking about this um over time right uh, when you say that, you know, there are studios and then there are independent creators and so on. Each one of them, of course, goes through a particular kind of trajectory of evolution from when they begin and go through a specific platform's affordances and logics and so on. And the key idea here has to do with a platform's evolution, right? That there is, as you argue in the book, that there is a dynamism at work in platform economies that we need to think about and account for very carefully. And the three of you discuss this in terms of the temporality of the many shifts and ups and downs that any platform goes through, from design to launch, uh, and through its life as different users come on board, and so on, right? And this seems to be one of the trickier aspects. You've already mentioned a little bit about drawing on different disciplines and some of the methodological um, rigor that you were trying to emulate uh, based on other fields. At a basic level, beyond just keeping up with platforms as they shift so much over time, just in the life cycle of writing the book, I'm sure some of the platforms you focus on went through key changes that the three of you probably had moments thinking, oh, no, we now have to account for this pretty significant shift in this platform's uh, mode of operation. What kinds of approaches did you develop, both methodologically and theoretically, to just grapple with this very different kind of temporality of uh, a media form?
5: Yeah, so what helped us again uh, tremendously are, are two schools of thought. Uh, first is again mainstream economics, um, where they have the, this really specific idea of launching a platform. So you have a new product or service or a platform market. You want to create a market essentially, um, and it goes to a very specific life cycle. And mainstream economists have theorized this again and, and have means to study this. Um, I started working with one of my colleagues. Uh, in London, Joost Rietveld happens to also be Dutch. Um, he he studies this stuff, um, and he you know t- taught me and us uh, how to think through how this life cycle of platforms. Because very early on, when a platform is s- sort of fairly young, like the early days of Facebook, early days of TikTok, they want to get as many of these complementers or cultural producers on board, um, and then later they shift their governance frameworks later they shift the economic reality for creators for game developers etc and they are underlying we, we always are so nervous about oh is this a universal logic uh, are we too economically deterministic and and that's a good reflex to have for us like are, but there are there seem to be when you launch a platform certain uh, constants uh, that have been Theorized in mainstream economics, so we learned from that. Um, because again, these shifts are have a sort of universality, so to say, uh, that helped us think through launching and and where is the platform that we're talking about or studying right now. The other. Um, sort of field and body of scholarship that has been very influential for us is, is the work that our peers and colleagues have done uh, in Amsterdam, the Digital Methods Initiative, and Helmond, or Fernando van der Vlist. Uh, they've done really rigorous and admirable. It's it's just always very impressive if I see them doing their stuff um, to sort of trace and retrace and visualize the, the shifts in architecture and infrastructures, sort of the back end of Facebook, API structures, partnership networks. Um, so they have the means and the methods uh, to do that. And, and we also were very inspired and, and draw on and build on that scholarship in the first half of the book, because they, well, again, pretty neatly uh, uh, demonstrate how we always have to account for how infrastructures are changing, how markets are are changing. Um, And again, this is always the place, uh, always the case. Markets always change. Infrastructures always change. Um, But what we've been looking for, and and luckily we not stumbled upon, but could build on work that was very rigorous in in giving us terms and concepts and methods to make sense of that uh, um, in, in in a very specific way.
3: Yeah, it's worth keeping in mind, right, especially as we teach this in class, that we remind students that markets are not given, they have to be made continually and have to be remade all the time. And what you said about infrastructural shifts, but also the partnership networks, that's where I think it connects with Thomas's point earlier about making sure that even as we think about these um, broad categories like design, the sort of SDKs, the backends, and so on. But they also are very political um, issues in the sense that, um, say, Facebook's partnerships in certain parts of Asia with certain states uh, are quite distinct, and it lends the platform um, a kind of affordance and the ways in which content gets made and circulated on there very different from, uh, say, a different part of the world. And uh, we can we can get back to that kind of... Um, both political and cultural specificity in our understanding of platforms and cultural production, uh, which then again in turn connects to histories of media governance, as you pointed out, right, each, uh, each part of the world. So I suppose we couldn't possibly have this conversation without thinking about the life cycle, about one major platform that we're all uh, contending with at the moment, Twitter, and in particularly these issues of platform governance, which are uh, historically specific, uh, rooted in very specific uh, political, economic contexts, and so on. And the three of you have dedicated an entire chapter to governance, which you define as institutional steering by platforms and off platforms. So when Jing and I were talking about this conversation, we, we thought, Is Twitter a useful case to grasp the challenges of platform governance? Maybe the three of you say, nope, we don't want to talk about Twitter, and that's fine. But especially when a platform like that operates across so many national and regional contexts with widely varying histories of media regulation and cultural governance, how does one approach an instance like this?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a, thank you for that very very uh, good question and urgent question uh, especially today. Um, so maybe maybe before we talk about Twitter, um, it's good to um, sort of uh, talk a little bit about sort of how we approach governance, right? So drawing on again Tarsa Gillespie, we think about sort of governance uh, by platforms as well as governance of platforms, right? And governance by platforms, which is really the core of what we're researching, because we're particularly interested, of course, in terms of how platforms intervene in these various sectors, um, what we've tried to do in, in this chapter, but also in other chapters, is to provide the conceptual language to think about these things systematically, right? So in the case of governance by platforms, we have um, conceptually distinguished between forms of Platform moderation, thinking about what platforms consider to be appropriate content, uh, what they provide in terms of a technical compatibility, uh, which is really about making sure that uh, the content that is shared on the platform uh, agrees with the terms of service of the platform. Then we talk about curation. Uh, about how the platform boosts particular content, makes it very visible or leaves particular content quite invisible, which is done algorithmically, but also uh, uh, through editors, human editors. Uh, And then finally, we talk about something which isn't discussed that much in the literature, uh, which is the ways in which platforms what we call regulate, set um, technical uh, standards, but also terms in terms of... Uh, how platform how um, uh, culture producers can share content through the platform, for example, by providing software development kits SDKs or providing application programming interfaces that allow external um, partners to to work with platform data. Um, so those three forms of or strategies of governance by platforms allow us to sort of systematically think about this, and then of course. Um, we can start thinking about how then platforms intervene in very different societies around the globe, right? Then we enter into the question of governance of platforms. So how public regulators uh, approach platforms and their their impact, um, in the case of Twitter, on on public debates. Uh, And one thing I think which becomes very, very clear Uh, in the case of Twitter, uh, which is already clear, I think, for the last five, six years or so, that platforms absolutely need to govern. Um, That uh, The idea that platforms just simply uh, facilitate public debate is is a fiction. Uh, And if they do not govern, then we're going to be overrun by uh, disinformation, uh, by racist, sexist and violent content. Uh, So there's this absolutely this uh, this need to govern. And I think uh, one of the reasons there is now currently such a concern over Twitter and the takeover by Elon Musk is that um, scholars, journalists, regulators are, uh, and I think rightly so, very concerned that Twitter does not take its role in terms of governing uh, the, the content that's played through the platform very serious, right? And so there are there are these efforts to to move to other platforms which do a better job in terms of governance. Um, having said that, I think the Twitter case also illustrates how incredibly difficult it is to move platforms, right? Because uh, people build audiences, right? They and have done that for over 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 years. And it's very difficult to move large numbers of end users and complementers to other platforms that then uh, would uh, would allow for this kind of exchange, which we have on Twitter uh, in in uh, in sort of the public uh, public space. Uh, so scholars obviously trying to do that uh, in the case of Mastodon, uh, but it's it's work in progress and needs a lot of sort of investment uh, on uh, on our part. And then maybe finally. Um, just one, one more thing in terms of these global differences, the way we've especially thought about this is this comparison between the US, Europe, and China. Uh, so in the case of, of the US, we've historically seen uh, regulators sort of backing off, mostly um, uh, uh, connecting uh, limited liability with platforms, whereas in the case of China, we see a very strict liability. And we see that uh, platforms are almost considered as media companies, which of course then have to uh, abide by the rules of media companies, which means very strictly intervening in terms of the content that's shared. And Europe uh, is somewhere situated in between these two extremes. Um, So I think that comparison uh, is very interesting and uh, uh, also again plays up in the case of Twitter, which is now sort of in, in hot water in the European context, precisely because it is uh, not uh, maybe doing enough in terms of governance. But maybe, David, you would like to chime in here.
5: Well, I, I think what we hope to uh, uh, inspire with the book is also scholarship on the governance of cultural production. And most of... not. I would, yeah, let let me just say it. I think the majority or most of the scholarship tends to focus on end users and how they are impacted by governance frameworks, unless there's less scholarship on cultural production. And one important question for us, and, and a gap in research and scholarship, which I think we found is how does how do these governance frameworks become explicit? How are they operationalized? And it is through these API application programming interfaces, software development kits, where the technical, the infrastructural, the, the market rules, the business rules really become tangible. They really become explicit, um, and and I think to our somewhat to our surprise, in some instances, some of that scholarship is still lacking. So we hope there's going to be more of that. Because if you want to understand Twitter today, we all know what what's all very familiar, maybe as users, but what's less visible, and there's less scholarship of the Twitter APIs, the Twitter SDKs that the last couple of weeks have vanished. And then the question becomes, what does that mean for people who want to make money for those cultural producers?
3: Yeah, thank you for that useful sort of reminder that we need to maybe um, revisit other moments of technological transition to see how we theorize the relationship between states, markets, cultural producers, and what kinds of norms and logics were put in place, that then we can pick up and see how those have shifted um, over the last two decades or so under the Uh, unfolding impact, if you can call it that, of digitalization um, broadly construed. Uh, But that also, what both of you said, um, helps us make a nice transition uh, to this question of cultural production, which, yes, David, we agree that there's a lot of focus on end users, but maybe this is where Brooke's uh, expertise becomes really valuable, where she connects or is able to look at Uh, The artifacts, a YouTube video here, an Instagram post there, but make that connection from there to broader ideas about cultural production, somewhat of a mid-level, neither focusing entirely on sort of, say, um, high-level market shifts or state practices, neither on the individual end user, but somewhere in between and trying to draw connections across these three terrains. Um, So maybe we can shift our attention uh, at this point in the conversation to questions of cultural practices and cultural production.
4: And Brooke, at the very beginning, you also mentioned a little how you approach the platforms and cultural industries from more of a bottom-up approach. And I noticed that your analysis of the platform-dependent cultural production centers around the figure of cultural producers. As we know, there are many aspects of cultural production in platform ecology, like reception, consumption, corporate culture and production as well. So I wonder what drives you to focus on the role and agency of cultural producers in this book?
2: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off. This
3: episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader the station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu.
0: Yeah. Thanks for the the question. And um, in answering it, I'm going to kind of return to some of my earlier work um, and the limitations of that, where I was interested in um, the ways in which, media industries were evolving in an era of digital and and social media. And so this was um, even when I was doing my dissertation research in like 2010. um, And I kept coming at, you know, how do we understand the the changes, the transformations, but also the continuities um, of media professionals? And my focus was primarily on um, routines and, and processes. But what was missing from the story was, um, was people. And you know, what are the individual experiences of cultural producers either working individually or in network formations um, that, that shape the conditions and of, of cultural production and eventually shape cultural products? And so in my more recent research, I have focused on um, labor, and this is part of kind of a a larger turn to to cultural work that many um, media sociologists have been writing about for for quite some time, and there's an important history to to media labor sociologies. Um, And so for this book, in thinking about uh, power, cultural production, transformation, it was really essential for us to think about um, who are the the people that create, distribute, monetize content. And of course, there's a lot of slippage between um, cultural producers as laborers. And as we were just talking about the sort of end users and um, the sort of you know, going back a decade and a half, the newly empowered consumer, the person who is um, uploading content onto YouTube and, and suddenly finds viral fame, or the individual who authors a, a blog post, and um, that gets taken up and considers themselves a sort of amateur journalist. So of course, there, there's slippage between um, the so called user and the, the labor. But it's really critical to consider the fact that these are people's working lives and they the cultural processes and cultural products that are created um, are born out of a, a professional orientation are born out of um, concerted labor practices and this is a lot of work and I think that's what uh, you know gets omitted from the discourses circulated by platform companies is you know the the fun the enjoyment the the creative self-expression. But over the years it's become apparent that this is um, this is a, a form of labor, much of it which is uncompensated, much of it which is unrecognized by platform companies as well as commercial brands. And so we wanted to put labor at the, the front and and center of the cultural practices uh, section of the book to highlight. Um, both the, the work that, that gets undertaken as well as a lot of the tensions that underlie this. And so um, you know, one of the tension that kind of picks up something that we were talking about earlier is that between visibility and invisibility. And so um, platform companies push us all to be visible and especially cultural producers. We were just talking about Twitter. I mean, this, this industry is predicated on the visibility of um, your reputation as well as your cultural products. But there's so much invisible labor that goes into this, um, you know, and and that includes not just from cultural producers, but something we we don't deal with too centrally, although we do a bit in the governance section, um, you know, content moderators, the the individuals who are working through this um, and making critical decisions about what gets seen and and what doesn't get seen, and so um, that's one of the tensions we look at. But also, um, you know you you ask the question about agency, and part of this this labor story in terms of thinking about cultural production is reckoning with the fact that so many fields of labor, and especially in the cultural industries, have become progressively individualized. Um, I think that when i when I'm teaching and I used to talk about um, you know, the collaborative nature of cultural production. And of course it's still collaborative, but I would pull up like an IMDB, um, you know, movie and and look at the hundreds of people that participated in this, or, you know, we think of a a novel as, um, produced by a single individual, but the reality is there's agents and publicists. And so cultural production is incredibly collaborative, but it has become progressively, individualized in part because of the volatile nature of, of platforms. And so um, reckoning with, with that element of labor, as well as the fact that, you know, there are still um, media companies, behemoths that, that kind of orchestrate a lot of this, you know, everything from newspaper companies to, to game development companies.
4: Yeah, those are really important. And in the second half of the book, you really outline that through labor, creativity, and by the end, toward democracy. So we'll get to them one by one. Um, And I want to also ask a very broad analytical and methodological question. So this section offers an incredibly rich repertoire of cultural practices in different platforms, uh, like we just talked about Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, Twitch, and so on. And it draws from very diverse experience of cultural producers from different national linguistic backgrounds like uh, North America, West Europe, Southeast Asia, and China. So, analytically or methodologically, how do you account for the specific uh, individualized cultural and geopolitical context where those platforms are based? And, you know, while at the same time addressing the common challenges faced by those cultural producers in so many different contexts.
0: Yeah, um, it's such an important issue that, that you raise because platform companies would have us believe that um, they are wholly global right even though the reality is so much um, initially was based in in Silicon Valley and very much uh, guided by those particular um, frameworks and, and ideals but we still hear this narrative of like the the global platforms and the reality is of course not just are the cultural practices incredibly um, localized but the relations to the the state are highly variable Um what labor work looks like in, in different contexts, uh, varies considerably across contexts. And um, that was one of the major struggles of the book is is how do we account for these variations given the fact that we all have um, very localized experiences in terms of the research. And so we, we leaned very heavily on um, other contributions of um, a global network of scholars who are looking at these very localized uh, cultural production practices within not just particular formations, but across uh, platforms that look very different, across relations to the state, as I mentioned, across um, even the ways in which um, compensation is made. You know, are we looking at someone who is an independent cultural producer and retains an income from? brand deals, or are they engaging in streaming, or are they employed by a particular particular formation? Um, So the best way we could do justice, given our own research limitations, was to um, draw another scholarship. But we also um, have more recently realized that in order to engage in some more productive theory building, it's important to think about this, this kind of um, what kind of holistic framework can we develop given these particularities. And so um, just a plug for a series of two special issues we are doing for the International Journal of of Cultural Studies on how to think about global perspectives on cultural production, given the the tensions um, and the difficulties that animate a lot of these conversations.
4: Thanks, that's really something worth looking forward to the two special issues. And just to follow up with a platform based labor, so you highlight some key tensions that cultural workers experience on a daily basis already very briefly. And you mentioned one particular tension is visibility versus invisibility, either culturally or. Uh, politically. And what are the other particular kinds of tensions you observe that can help illuminate the logics of platform economy? Also, it's infrastructure inequalities in a sense. And for many platform-based workers nowadays, we know particularly during COVID-19, there's a lot of jobs Insecurity, financial insecurity. So, are there any counter movements to those dominant platform-generated inequalities?
0: Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm glad you brought up the issue of of security and and insecurity because, um, again, there is a narrative that not only is working in cultural production, like essentially um, a, a route to freedom, right? Oh, I get to, I have this individual passion and I get to share it with the world. And the reality, of course, as soon as you start thinking about audiences and 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 markets, um, Some of that gets eclipsed. But the issue of job security and insecurity, I mean, this is certainly a long tension in the creative industries. Um, You know, this idea that you're I think it's from a 2001 article um, by Helen Blair, like you're only as good as your last film product. You're only as good as your your last um, you know, in this case, you're only as good as your last tweet. And so the issue of, of Twitter, which we just touched upon, uh, brought the issue of, of precarity really into sharp relief for people whose livelihoods are dependent upon um, how to get their content seen by audiences. And we talk about this in the book a bit. Um, the fact that if you are dependent on any of these platforms, and as we are seeing with Twitter, as we saw with Vine, your entire livelihood can be shattered at a moment when the platform disappears. I mean, they, they have your content, they have your access to audiences. And so this is an incredibly precarious career field. And so, um, you know, your question gets to like, what are we doing? What are Not just what are we doing, but what are cultural producers doing in order to mitigate some of the risks and uncertainties of living through this sort of platform evolution that we were all just talking about in the context of Twitter? Um, And, you know, some of these are mirror more closely what we would think of traditional union labor organizing. Of course, people are not all um, gathering around on the the shop floor to figure out, like, how can we take down the boss? But I found some very um, incredibly productive ways that cultural producers are supporting each other and trying to um, maintain some semblance of what looks like security amid um, kind of radical uncertainty. And so... One is that they are going off platform to establish various support communities where they discuss in depth, like, how can we, um, how can we wrestle with Instagram's latest algorithm or how can we make sense of TikTok's governance decision in a way that enables us to maintain our livelihoods? Um, there's also a lot of very cool crowdsourced, um, initiatives that cultural producers are creating to talk about compensation because, um, platform companies as well as brands benefit from the lack of economic transparency that, that drives this industry, of course, you know, um, you know, the, the mantra of work for exposure, work for free. And so there are a number of collectives. One is called FU pay me. Um, one is for, um, black creatives, and it's entirely um, anonymous where people go and talk about. Okay, well, this is what I'm getting from TikTok's Creator Fund, or this is what I'm getting from X brand that enables creators to say, well, you know, you're. I know that you're paying. This is the the going rate for, um, you know, this type of work for this contracted deal. So I I want to make sure I am getting equitable pay. So that's where we're seeing um, pay equality. But I also think that um, just the sort of network sharing that people do about mechanisms and platform power are really important. And again, it doesn't look like we would we would call, okay, this is the same as a union. Um, there is a, a YouTube union in the works, but these are ways that creators are coming together in these incredibly atomized fields in a way to try to wrest back some of the power from platform companies.
4: Yeah, there seems to be such incredible creativity in creating those networks or the collectives as you just described. And this kind of leads us to discuss what creativity means in the uh, second part of the book. So particularly you build on the concept of Uh, quote, vernacular creativity on page 134. And it basically means the everyday practices of cultural production by ordinary people, by ordinary cultural producers. Can you elaborate a bit more like why the everyday aspects of media production are so central to the question of creativity? And also on a related note, how do concepts like authenticity help us better understand the tensions between those profit-driven platform logics and those individual quests for socialization belonging, like you were saying, through mutual aid, through network sharing, and through the support communities?
0: Yeah. um, So as as you know, we draw on this idea of vernacular creativity, which um, in a lot of ways addresses the fact that what is considered creative today looks very different than... um, you know, creativity of the legacy media environments. And of course, there are um, there are tropes that that cross boundaries and that have, um, you know, a sense of longevity. And um, I think it's important to kind of historically contextualize what is considered creative. But for us, um, you know, we we struggled with how to how do you define something as elusive and nebulous as creativity and so for us we we located into what do cultural products look like in a platform environment and um what do creative producers look like in a a platform environment Um, and inevitably the question of um authenticity comes up and and you raise this this very seductive ideal that um many very uh thoughtful attempts to suss out have been written. We draw upon um, in sociology, David Grazian, we draw upon the work in uh, communication of Jeff Pooley, of Sarah Benet-Weiser, of Stuart Cunningham, and, and David Craig, of, of Alice Marwick. Um, and acknowledging the fact that authenticity is is constructed and um, in reckoning with the fact that authenticity and consumer culture are, Sarah Benny Weiser says, you know, exist in kind of um, a state of ambivalence. And for us, one of the ways in which authenticity was um, circulated was this idea that um, not just of originality, but of the fact that these products were created because. Um, somebody has something that they want to put out there into the world and, and share with audiences. Um, but where this tension comes up, and I I sort of touched upon this in the last question is, um, for cultural producers, going back to this idea of, of multi-sided markets, they need to account for, audiences um, or presumed audiences and they need to account for um platforms they also need to account for sponsors advertisers talent agencies and so when you have this idea of um an authentic message an authentic cultural expression um a youtube video that i'm creating because i really want to share this or um you know this this article this that I, I want to put out there in the world. As soon as you start accommodating these various markets, that inevitably puts some kind of pressure on the cultural um, on the cultural producer. And again, thinking about this historically, this isn't new. Uh, you know, if you work in the traditional media industries, of course you had to think about how can I have a commercial-friendly environment? Political economists have often talked about the importance of um, you know, brand friendly content. And you need to think about what does well with audiences, what sells well. But I think what's, what's new here is the fact that um, authenticity is structured not just by the the demands or their perceived demands of audiences and advertisers, but also how can you accommodate the the platform companies um, or your imagination of the platform companies. And so by here, in, in this case, a good example, um, that we talk about in the book is anticipating, um, how to please the algorithms or not get punished by the algorithms when you're a cultural producer and you want to make sure that your content gets seen, but you're also structured by the fact that, um, certain hashtags are perceived to be moderated unfairly within this ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, it's it's important to kind of in, in all of these to account for the fact that um, these ideals and norms are are not um, do not circulated unchecked. They are all sort of sit in a place of, of tensions. And so in that case, with authenticity and self-promotion.
4: That's really fascinating. Um, I just want to follow up with a quick question. Like, can you give a specific example, for instance, from TikTok? There are so many videos and it's popular across continents. So how do you see authenticity played out on this platform? And how do cultural producers there kind of uh, construct this sense of authenticity and reaching to different audiences?
0: Yeah, TikTok is is an especially um interesting example because so many cultural producers in order to pursue success wanna end up on the For You page. And um, so, you know, the idea of getting on the For You page is you have this, this video or this, this dance that no one has ever done, and it's going to, um, you know, w- curry favor with the, the TikTok algorithm, however that works. But what I, I found in discussions with cultural producers is they wanna emulate the trends and a lot of cases emulating the the trends goes to um issues of taking people's ideas especially people of color and not crediting them i mean that's that's been a larger issue of of tiktok but that right there you can see how this this tension plays out where okay well you know i have this I have this video that I'm gonna put out there and, and see if it does well and draws audiences, but the reality is how can I emulate the the current trends? Of course, this is something that cultural producers have have long done is sort of tap into um whatever the the sort of uh, the codes and and fads are of a particular moment.
3: Thank you again for all of those insights and I'm thinking here especially of recent work that's coming out at the intersection of Uh, in the U.S. context in particular, black studies and digital studies, where this question of authenticity becomes really central to platform logics. And again, it's ambivalent. Uh, There are no easy answers to uh, how platforms deal with it or by the same token, how cultural producers are at a serious disadvantage when it comes to algorithmic curation and those kinds of uh, policies and politics as well. Uh, And I think everything you've said, Brooke, really aligns nicely with broader shifts happening in the domain of cultural production globally. Um, And I think all three of you are right that going forward, we'll need to really delve much more deeply into those contexts uh, to give all of this uh, greater sort of regional nuance and so on. And I guess as we come to the end of the book, um, can we make connections then from these questions of Institutional dimensions of platforms, the cultural practices, and everything in between these two poles, and think about uh, the present and future of democratic politics. And you point out, for example, a central paradox between how platform companies have always made these very lofty progressive claims uh, about authenticity, representation, uh, claims about social justice and so on, while at the same time taking a conservative or maybe even reactionary approach when it comes to governance, when it comes to content moderation and curation. And how do you think through this tension and how do ch- cultural producers deal with these challenges, especially those from marginalized communities, right? And in this, in this so-called post-truth era, What kinds of media forms, strategies have you been noticing uh, amongst cultural producers, uh, especially communities of color, LGBTQ communities, and so on? What have they been doing to adopt practices to push back against these homogenizing forces of uh, platform economies, uh, both in what we might call as a shorthand uh, progressive liberal circuits and contexts, but also in distinctly illiberal contexts?
0: Great. So I will um, start with this question, and then pass it on to uh, Thomas. And just a a bit of a short backstory that when we were writing the book, the last section on democracy, um, we we really wanted to reckon with um, you know what is the the relationship between cultural producers and larger civic and and political life. And we had initially um, titled and structured this chapter as a citizenship, um, because that sort of got at a lot of the issues that we cover in there from from access to governance, to protection from harms. Uh, But we realized that really was so located in um, assumptions about consumers. And we we realized after a very helpful review of the book that what we were really talking about was um, democracy and, and how it's related to cultural producers, cultural production and, and practices. Um, and Aspen, as you just noted, I mean, that, yeah, there's this like foundational tension between um, the way platform companies promise to be democratic and the lived realities of not just users, but but cultural producers and um some of the ways in which they are challenging this power um you know need to be framed within the realities that as we opened with like they they depend upon these platforms for um access to audiences as well as monetary sources um and so i think like a really interesting moment is the fact that some of them and again some of them with um, some of the creators with the highest levels of visibility are willing to publicly um criticize the platform companies for their treatment um a really cool example that came out after the book was a comedian uh, ziggy tyler on um i'm not sure if you're familiar but he is a comedian on on TikTok. And he realized that when he put the term, um, he put the term black in to the TikTok creator fund and he got banned. Um, and then he tried the term white and it got through. Then he tried the term white supremacy that got through. He tried black lives matter that got banned. Um, And why I draw upon this example is he created a video about it and it ended up going viral and um, which is really cool. And TikTok and and, um, finally issued a sort of apology about it. But in that particular case, we have a creator of color who had already a a very um, impressive audience who was willing to critique the company publicly, even though they were um, compensating him in in some particular way. And so I think that's one of the ways in which we see this tension between visibility and invisibility, especially among marginalized creators where they are either willing to um, challenge the platform dominance or find some creative workarounds. And uh, one other example I'll I'll just draw upon, and this relates to um, some of the research being done by uh, Carolina R., but thinking about how sex workers who um, rely upon some of these platforms in various ways, including to um reach audiences and and burnish their platforms have found workarounds for their perceived moderation efforts. And so one of the ones they do in um algorithms in order to promote their work on hashtags is use um so-called algo speaks. So they'll use S E G G S like SEGs instead of sex in order to um try to find a way to thwart platform power. Um, but again, I think the you know the 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 issue here is the fact that it's marginalized creators who need to have these workarounds um, because they are the ones that are continuously experiencing both explicit and more often implicit um, systems of, of bias and discrimination where they need to invest their time and energy and in, in figuring out what are ways in order to um, continue to do their jobs, given the kind of system of, of conservatism, conservatism that seems to shroud these companies. And so I'll pass it over to
1: Thomas. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Brooke. So uh, I think just when I listened to, to Brooke talking, it sort of reminded me of the entire process of writing this book, which was constantly going back and forth between on the one hand, sort of our overall conceptual framework and then thinking through that framework for these kinds of examples and then trying to figure out so how to actually interpret these examples. And maybe that actually uh, requires us to go back to our theoretical framework and maybe adapt some of that. So uh, my contribution was always to sort of bring back uh, the larger conceptual framework. And for, from that perspective, I think when we think about the question of democracy, a couple of things sort of stick out. And the first one, obviously, which we also start a book the chapter with on democracy is uh, the realization that platforms provide relatively open markets and infrastructures, right? So, uh, which are obviously much more open if you compare them to to historically, to media companies, which then means that it opens the door uh, to indeed marginalized communities, but to a, a, a much more broadly, to a wide variety of actors and voices, which, have not historically been very much part of, at least, open public uh, uh, discourse. Um, So that kind of contains uh, the promise of democracy, but then uh, there are immediate caveats, right? So um, the first caveat is that even though there appears to be a lot of diversity, uh, we see in platform markets, that there are very strong winner-take-all mechanisms, which is something uh, David has talked about. Uh, So some actors become much more visible than others and have therefore a much uh, louder voice. And uh, strikingly, often those that become much more visible are those that have extensive resources. So very networked uh, or historically build up these resources like media companies, which then become very visible in public discourse. Um, so I think that's that's the first caveat uh, in terms of thinking about platforms in relation to democracy. The second one, and I think uh, Brooke put it very well, I think we need to think about platforms very much as sort of fields of tension, right? Where, Or maybe we can think about platforms as this ongoing balancing act between, indeed, end users, uh, cultural producers, but also advertisers. So many uh, of these uh, controversial cases, we can see that advertisers have a very loud voice. Um, so the famous uh, ad apocalypse. Uh, so when uh, YouTube uh, videos were connected, extremist YouTube videos were connected with advertisements, advertisers started to pull back en masse, uh, which then led YouTube to immediately re- respond and start adapting uh, its, its terms. So it's a balancing act which has a lot of these different actors um, which they need to be kept on board for the for the platform to remain a viable business, which in practice often leads to conservatism, as we can as we can see in many of these cases. And uh, I think Brooks example also speaks to that. And then um, maybe finally, uh, what is also very striking and uh, um, well, quite a few commentators have have talked about this is that platform companies often do not have the editorial expertise uh, in the way which has been uh, built up by media companies. So uh, they, uh, they do not have um, the capacity, first of all, to deal with this massive amount of, uh, of content um, in a way which media companies have done. So to really weigh the different interests, concerns um, involved, when it, when it comes to uh, political and cultural issues. Uh, a great example of this is the terror of war image uh, from the Vietnam War, which was continuously being uh, removed from Facebook, which which at the same time is, of course, historical, a very important historical document. Uh, so you can see in this particular case that the, f- the, the picture itself uh, conflicts with the terms of service, but at the same time, uh, has, a, has an important historical importance. So in these kinds of cases, you would need editorial expertise to deal, to deal with these issues. Um, so I think what you can see, there's the promise of democracy, yet in practice, there are so many caveats that come in that make platforms a, a really ambiguous place in terms of thinking about this uh, as, uh, as vehicles of democracy. Um, maybe i can turn it over to david because this is one of the chapters which i think was most um, collaborative in terms of thinking thinking through and also the one which we struggled with most i guess um, so david you um, you helped us also think through this notion of diversity there i don't know maybe maybe you want to comment on that
5: Yeah, I think what it's important is to recognize the the complexity of these issues. And and what we try to do is to, how can we have complex conversations about complex issues, which is culture? Um, And when I hear Brooke speak and when I hear Thomas speak, then my reflex always will be, oh, okay, so how does the market, how do business models and infrastructures play into this? How do the, the need for, let's say, Twitter which is now potentially switching from advertising to subscription. If that would happen, what would that mean for cultural producers? So that doesn't, anything Brooke said is not out of the window because of that shift. It means that, oh, suddenly all those shifts on TikTok, on Twitter, they, they constantly, they instantly are, are different. Uh, and what we need to understand that um, is to have a shared language by which we measure what kinds of diversity. Um, And when we talk about cultural production, uh, we want to include questions about money. If we want it or not, we should. Questions about infrastructural access, who can access what kind of data. Sometimes you don't make some money yet, but maybe you'll make money later if you have access to some kind of data or to specific tools, who have access to specific tools, under what circumstances. Um, So those are, constant look of a back and forth between the everyday labor practices of 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 users of producers and then varying instantly back uh, to those questions of economics, business models and and infrastructure. So this back and forth and I hope for the last hour we've demonstrated how that plays out in our minds. hopefully that helps us advance uh, while recognizing again this is we should rec- recognize the complexity. I think that's important. Uh, and not sort of fall into the trap, oh, this is the answer of of all all of it. Uh, No, there are shared issues and and terms we can discuss this, but that's about it.
3: Thank you. And I think this question of shared language, a set of conceptual frameworks that we can use to think through all of these issues in different contexts is something that the three of you have absolutely provided. And I should say that This was on such stunning display at the ICA post-conference that the three of you along with other colleagues at Amsterdam organized uh, earlier this year, where the sheer range of presentations that we all saw, I was very fortunate to be there, from a stunning range of contexts around the world. Um, And it really was uh, an important moment of recognition uh, for all of us at that conference To see how yes we have a shared vocabulary and these sets of concepts and ideas but really going forward it sounds like everything we can do to nurture and foster um, that kind of historically grounded regionally specific work is going to be crucial over the next decade as we grapple with uh, the social the cultural and the political implications of what the three of you have called platformization of uh, our societies writ large Um, so i suppose a question we could end on is uh, Bo Jing and I are really curious about what the next steps are. I mean, you've written a book which seems to already be in need of some crucial updating, as you've all just been pointing out. Uh, so maybe a second edition is in the works. Uh, but also we are curious to hear a little bit more about something you mentioned early on uh, about... Is it a research network that you're creating around questions of globalization and digital cultures? Or is it more specific to do with uh, platforms and cultural production? Perhaps you can tell us and our listeners a little bit more about this network and how various of us can get involved.
1: Yeah, thanks. Oswin. So yeah, uh, so we indeed had a conference uh, this, uh, this past summer on platforms, uh, global perspectives on platforms and cultural production, and uh, you made a great contribution uh, to the conference as one of the keynote speakers. And um, so I, I, we started this conversation with sort of the realization that for us, um, so while moving um, uh, in, into this project and developing ideas, we constantly ran into our own limitations. Right, uh, first sort of thinking about this, the institutional dimensions, and then figuring out that we really needed to consider uh, and th- and also systematically explore cultural practices of platformization. Uh, but then, uh, working on the book, we quite quickly realized that our own knowledge of how uh, platforms and platformization unfolds in these various uh, cultural and political contexts around the globe is really very limited. Um, so for that reason, uh, we we organized the conference uh, to bring together scholars from around the globe to think about, indeed, this relationship between platforms and cultural producers uh, from the, their very particular context in which they're working and, and doing research, not just particular in terms of the uh, industries they're working on, but also in terms of their cultures and, and, and politics. Um, so that, that was the conference, and the conference then inspired us to take at least uh, uh, well try to take a, a couple of next steps the first one is this uh, double special issue which we mentioned a couple of times of the international journal of cultural studies in which we try to draw from the experience of the conference and sort of revisit a number of key concepts in our in the study of platforms and cultural production uh, such as precarity or diversity or agency all of these things which we mentioned in this uh, in this podcast, or empowerment, or for example, also the distinction between the global south and the global north, and to uh, revisit them from the particular research that's done uh, by scholars in different parts of the world, and with the idea being, of course, not to produce a universalizing theory, but really to expand um to broaden the geographies of theory, to use these case study as an opportunity for theory building. Um, so I think that that is really important work, which we obviously can't do ourselves and really needs to be done by colleagues uh, around the world. And uh, well, as a next step, and hopefully that will work, but that's something which also depends on whether other people want to collaborate, <laughs> is we hope to create a network indeed. Um, so maybe organize uh, the conference, which we had in Amsterdam in the past summer, also elsewhere um, in, uh, at other institutions in other countries, uh, which would be wonderful because we had such a great experience here in Amsterdam. We'd love to repeat
3: it uh, and, and turn this into an ongoing conversation. Thank you. And we will look forward to hearing more about those plans in the coming months and years. And I wanted to thank you again for joining us and for engaging with these questions and for this terrific conversation about your book um, that I hope many more of our listeners pick up, uh, read, and like you've said, um, build on uh, in their own work uh, in the coming coming years. Uh, So thank you again. And we look forward to hearing more from you in the coming months and years. Thank you for listening to our Global Media and Communication podcast. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out through our email, cargc at asc.upenn.edu, or follow us on Twitter.
4: Until next time.